As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, lads, it's Tottenham sacking their manager. We look at Monday morning's announcement that gives Spurs fans hope for the afternoon though, and ask how excited should be Man United for being less worse than Spurs. Elsewhere, Pep gets the most surprising Palace visit since Pizza Express in Woking. Moyes demolishes Villa with some hammers. What the French think of Aaron Ramsdale and much more besides in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Bosh, it's Monday the 1st of November and listener, you've joined us just in time to hear Daniel's story of the I. Hello, James. Dan Bardell of the 1874 podcast and The Athletic. Morning. And Tom Williams of Court Number 1 Versailles give their thoughts on the events of this weekend. Tom, you're, you're joining us from literally just outside the French capital, we. I'm actually, no, I'm actually in the French capital. I'm in Ooh. Paris at the moment. So the, the trial of which you speak, the, mm. uh, the Karen Benzema, Mathieu Valbuena, Affaire de la Sexte, that was actually the week before last uh, oh. in Versailles. And I'm in Paris this week on, on French TV duty. Boom. Loving that. Uh, let's just quickly inform any listeners who missed it that the trial that Tom's referring to is the uh, L'Affaire de la Sex tape between Karim Benzema and his alleged complicity in an attempt to blackmail his former France teammate Mathieu Valbuena, for which prosecutors uh, sought a 10-month suspended sentence. Um, what's the shagadrome, Tom? The uh, shagadrome was the name given to Mathieu Valbuena's uh, home by one of uh, Benzema's co-accused. There was this right. one guy, Mustafa Zouawi, who, who basically tried to make the trial all about himself. Um, and, and his allegation was that the, uh, the Valbuena homestead uh, was a place where, uh, where sexual activity was, um, w- was very much a, a theme and one could uh, observe all manner of things uh, right. if one happened to be uh, in attendance at, at one of his soirees. Um, Valbuena didn't didn't respond to that, but I, you know, should probably point out that that was just a one random comment from one very random and quite obnoxious man uh, during the course of this three day trial. Okay, I'm hoping your report for the Athletic is a little bit spicier than this. 
uh, Tom, but I'm going to be... Oh, uh, yeah, oh, there's plenty, plenty of spice. Plenty right. of spice in that bad boy. Excellent, excellent. All right, well, uh, let's get going with the football, eh? Uh, Saturday, not a good day for the following groups. Uh, supporters in the northeast, Newcastle, Borough, Sunderland and Hartlepool, all losing by combined scoreline of 15-1 to 1 on Saturday. And also, uh, anyone doing Premier League predictions? Uh, ours on Thursday were particularly a miss. Arsenal's 2-0 win away at Leicester, we didn't get that. Watford playing Saints, no one scoring five goals and Saints winning 1-0. Missed that as well. Uh, we missed out on Burnley winning at home. For the first time in 11 months, a 3-1 against Brentford. Uh, also, Brighton coming from 2-0 down to take a 2-2 draw away at Liverpool. And we especially did not expect the events at the Etihad where Crystal Palace, who'd had one win all season, beat mighty Man City 2-0. Crisis club Man United going to Spurs and winning 3-0 did have a kind of weary familiarity to it. And Chelsea beating Newcastle 3-0 certainly wasn't a surprise, but still... Shocks galore. Sunday was more straightforward. Leeds are winning 2-1 at Norwich and West Ham beating Villa 4-1 in the David Cameron confusion derby. It leaves table fans. Chelsea now three points clear of Liverpool and five points ahead of Man City and West Ham who are level in third and fourth. points. Behind them, Man United and Arsenal just three points from the top four. At the other end, Burnley, Newcastle and Norwich are still the bottom three. Burnley only three points behind Leeds in 17th, but the other two look in some trouble. Newcastle are six points now from safety, and Norwich a full eight. Daniel, it's okay to look at the table now after 10 games? Yeah, I think so. Um, Particularly the bottom three. Um, It now feels like Newcastle are officially in all sorts of trouble, I think. Um, Watford kind of getting dragged into it, and and maybe Brentford as well. So that would be a shame if it was three promoted clubs. But yeah, it feels this season more than any other, a real big club might get dragged into that bottom three, I think. Right. Dan's looking very nervous when when you say that, and we'll hear why (laughs) later on. But let's start uh, with Saturday tea time and the game that marked the ceremonial passage of the Baton of Crisis from Man United to Spurs. Oli saving his job, air quotes. And uh, seeing Nuno forfeit his. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Get it back, but here is Rashford. Is it going to be three? Well, he's put it in the net. We look across at an assistant who's had to make some calls today, but Marcus Rashford has put it beyond doubt for Manchester United. All right, Tottenham nil, Man United three. And as you may have seen, listener, Monday morning, Nuno Spirito Santo paying the price for this exceptionally dispiriting performance by his side, uh, relieved of his duties by the club. Still don't have a definite word on who's going to be taking over, but they're going to be, is this right, the fourth Tottenham manager of the calendar year 2021? Hmm. Yeah, it's a club that is, is from the outside, pretty broken. Um Reports suggest that that Antonio Conte is in in London for for talks. Which, if there is a you know appointment of a high profile coach who has a history of kind of covering over those cracks and uh, creating a pretty impressive team, it's Antonio Conte. And that, in a bizarre way, would would feel like kind of three left turns and ending up back where you started at the start of the summer, where Tottenham kind of went after Conte. He rejected it. I think assuming that other clubs may approach him. I think Manchester United is probably one of those. But if he now feels that Tottenham is a is a good option and that Kane's future is a little bit more secured, I think that would be a, a heck of an appointment and would certainly vindicate Nuno's sacking. Um, 
But make no mistake about it, there's a lot of work to do with this Tottenham team. Well, doing the damage on Saturday were Ronaldo and Cavani and ooh, late on Marcus Rashford uh, with a what was a pretty fantastic performance eventually from a Man United team who themselves came in with their manager under all sorts of pressure. What did you make? Ronaldo's volley, Cavani after that lovely bit of teamwork. Which was your favourite? I mean, that, that Ronaldo goal is what he was brought in to do. Those, those special moments. He, he seemed to play with a bit more of an air of, of arrogance on, on, on Saturday, I thought, than he has done in, in previous games. It was like, I'm going to be the man, I'm going to be the one to put this right. And he, he set the tone for Manchester United with that goal. I will say that I felt like the, the formation change was perhaps a week too late. Solskjaer deserves credit for, for changing it up because they needed to do something. But that, they'd have beaten Spurs, I think, playing the, the standard formation that, that they normally play. But that formation might have served them better against a swashbuckling Liverpool who, who ripped them to shreds. But it, it just felt like Solskjaer wanted to call on experience. He obviously had Varane back to call upon, which he makes a huge difference to that Manchester United side. He's got Cavani up there with Ronaldo. Cavani pressing, a great finisher, probably been underutilised so far this season, such as the array of attacking talent that Solskjaer has. He's always going to be leaving out big-name players. I don't think it necessarily means that they've turned the corner because Spurs were absolutely awful, but you, you can only beat what's put in front of you and Manchester United and all they did that. Absolutely. Well, they've got uh, another test coming up midweek away at Atalanta. We're not in the best of form. One win in four in all competitions, the Berger Maschi. And of course, they gave United a bit of a scare in the first half of their clash at Old Trafford. That group's pretty tight. All four teams, Man United are top of the quartet, but there's only three points between them and, and Young Boys in last place. But still, nice little fillip for their morale as they head in uh, to that game. Dan's point that it doesn't matter really who you put out against Spurs when they play this badly. They look absolutely abject, and it was interesting to see the, the Spurs fans so very vocal uh, about Nuno and also Harry Kane in, in, in this game. How much of the way they played was his fault? How, how big a job does whoever come in uh, now face? Harry Kane kind of feels like he's, he's living through his very own personal It's a Wonderful Life um, in that he's sort of being, being led around Tottenham matches and being shown what it would look like he had left because he's not actually doing anything in the games that he plays in despite having stayed. You know, all his teammates are miserable because he's not doing the things he used to do. All the fans are miserable because he's not scoring the goals he used to score. And yet he's still there on the pitch somehow, just sort of wandering around uh, a, a slightly ghost-like figure. Mm. Um, but I think that will be that will be pretty high up on the list of, of whoever ends up coming in, uh, getting Harry Kane back to back to the form of old. Right. Antonio Conte potentially in the, the Clarence Oddbody role then in your It's a Wonderful Life, the, the guardian angel who comes in and shows... It shows George what life would have been like at Bedford Falls without him. I'm wondering a little bit, but it's a lovely analogy. Um, any sympathy for Nuno Spirito Santo, the first Spurs manager to lose five of his opening ten games since Christian Gross? Was it all his yeah. fault? Uh, I mean, there are bigger problems than Nuno at Tottenham. There are bigger problems than, than Paratici and there are... <laughs> everything goes right to the top and that's the same with Manchester United it's the same with most crisis clubs quite frankly um, and if it is true that Tottenham have seen a, a, a route into Antonio Conte coming in then then that makes total sense he's clearly collateral damage in that but he's not even matched the lowest expectations of, of his job which is to get the most out of the two obvious flagship players the two the two players of, of 
world-class quality in Tottenham's team. And I, I, it's hard when watching Tottenham over the last few weeks to even work out what that plan is to get the most out of, of Harry Kane and Hyungmin's son because the midfield is so stodgy and Kane and son like being on the ball so much that the inevitability is that they drop deeper and deeper to to try and pick it up and Tottenham essentially become a team of, of midfielders and that midfield is therefore incredibly clogged and the ball is passed around looking for an opening and looking for space that just doesn't exist because it's very easy to defend a team in which the pitch is made to look very small um, and I can't quite work out what Nuno was even going for there because there isn't an obvious plan. It isn't a plan to, to counter-attack. It isn't a plan to um, you kind of press from the front. It isn't a plan to even to, to kind of sit deep and maximise set pieces. It's just nothing, really. Uh, he isn't the biggest problem, but he also wasn't a solution, I think it's fair to say. Mm. It doesn't suit what they want, does he? The, the, the remit that, that, that Levy put out is not Nuna. You know, he's, he, he did very well with Wolves, got them up to seventh-place finishes, but then the wheels did start to come off a little bit at Wolves last season, so he's kind of turned up at Spurs, not when his stock's at its highest. Hmm. So he's, he's had a few issues at Wolves in their final season, and then he's gone into another club that have got a, a lot of problems. And I just think he, he's on a hide into nothing. He's lost 50% of his Premier League games so far. There's, there's no there's no patterns of play there. there. There's nothing to get excited about at Spurs. As alarming as Manchester United were defensively against Liverpool the week, the week before, I thought it was alarming what Spurs were doing in attack against West Ham because they literally offered nothing, and that's now carried on into into the Manchester into the Manchester United game. And who knows already on on borrowed time. But if I was a Spurs fan, I, I wouldn't trust them to get the next appointment right either because since Pochettino left, it's just been a disaster. All right. I mean, Spurs fans didn't really like Jose Mourinho very much. And in, in signing Nuno Espirito Santo as his long-term replacement, they basically got someone who's, whose football is as bad, if not worse, than Mourinho's, yeah. but who doesn't even bring any of the sort of, you know, Mourinho sound bites or very occasional flickers of, of charisma. Um, so you, you can understand why, uh, you know, why Spurs fans are dissatisfied. I mean, it's, as Daniel says, I, f- I feel sorry for, for Nuno. I think what he did at, at Wolves showed that, that he was ready to, to take on, um, you know, a slightly more, more higher level team. But it, it's just the absolute worst kind of fit. You know, a club that, that prides itself on trying to play football in a certain way and a coach who has never really been about that sort of thing. And, and perhaps it's, you know, it'll be the best for, for all concerned. This victory will last far less long in the memory for Manchester United than the Liverpool defeat and Manchester United are a club of the the stature and size that you don't get to deflect all problems with with one away win against a a poor opponent if they've beaten Atlanta and Manchester City in the next three games then 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 we probably are having a slightly different conversation but it does feel with Solskjaer that we are kind of inevitably wedded to this cycle of uh, of kind of decay and then slight comeback and I just feel that the eventually the decay will be is becoming more obvious and the comebacks are becoming briefer. So maybe we'll have one win and then another setback or two wins and another setback. And it's just how far they want to you know persist with that because we've said it before, they should be they should be challenging for the title with, with the three clubs above them. Next up let's move on and get your thoughts on a very mixed day for the top three. Here at Paddy Power, we know being realistic can mean different things to different people. A realistic fullback doesn't pay attention when a fan tells him to shoot from 40 yards out. And a realistic Arsenal fan won't be making plans for Champions League away days anytime soon. 
So for Safer Gambling Week, we want to make sure that all our customers have set themselves a realistic deposit limit on their accounts, so you never bet more than you can afford. Search Paddy Power Deposit Limit to set yours. Paddy Power. 18plusbegambleaware.org Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Mix. That's what you'd call the top threes day on Saturday. Chelsea winning at Newcastle, Liverpool drawing with Brighton after being two goals up. Man City losing 2-0 at home to Crystal Palace. Crikey. Only Palace's second win under Patrick Vieira, a man who less than a year ago was getting sacked by Nice. Crikey, this, this feels like quite a dramatic day in his career. Yeah, definitely. Uh, first big win with Palace uh, for Patrick Vieira. Um, and I think a win that has, that has been coming. You look at some of Palace's recent results. Uh, they'd had four draws in a row uh, before that trip to the Etihad. They'd been quite close. Um, almost won at Arsenal, uh, were it not for that, that very late uh, Alexander Lacazette goal. Um, and it was, it was the perfect away performance at Man City. I think if you're going to go and win at City, you need to score early. You need to take your chances uh, when they fall to you um, and you need a bit of luck as well. Uh, and they got that a slightly fortunate finish, but by Wolf Zaha for the first goal. There's then the, the Amarik Laporte red card, uh, first half stoppage time, which which plays into Palace's hands. And, and, and then they score that really nicely taken goal through Conor Gallagher on the counter-attack towards the end of the game, rewarding a, a superb individual performance from him um, and I think in a way it, it you know it was, a, it was an excellent performance I don't think it really reflected what Vieira's changed there you know he's he's been more about turning them into a more of a football team you know giving them slightly more dynamism in, in the attacking third whereas this was if not back to the wall this was a more sort of clinical performance get an early goal play on the counter-attack um, but yeah I think you know just reward for for the changes that, that Vieira's made it, it feels like he's he's successfully breathed uh, new life into this into this Palace squad, and um, this uh, this feels like a result that, that they should now go and uh, look to build on. You talk about the changes he's made at Palace as well. I thought the changes he made for this game were really astute as well. Benteke has been on great form the last few weeks. He's been a real handful for Palace up front, but for this specific game, Vieira took him out and went with a more mobile front three. Brought Zahar back in and moved Edouard in, in into the middle, and it just worked. And you know when he got the, when he got the sack from Nice. I wasn't expecting Vieira to have the, ma- the massive impact he's had on Palace so far. They're, they've only won two games, but every time I've watched them, I've been impressed with them. And I just think the job he's done so far, it's very difficult to go from turning aside that were like they were under Hodgson. Not that that was the wrong way to be, but to turn them into what they are now. They're a really, really interesting team to watch. And, and they should have more points because they've found some unique ways to throw away points at the, at the end of game. So... Yeah, the fact that he went with that more mobile front three and took the man who's been in form scoring the goals out, I think that's testament to what Vieira is doing at the moment. I wonder if there, it, it might be a bit of a blueprint for him because there was a danger 
uh, I think in those those in some of those draws that he was aiming for possession, but there was a kind of sort of possession for its own sake. They were a little bit slow to get the ball up the pitch, and we know that players like Wilfried Zaha love playing on the counter attack. They love when there's space in front of them. You're more likely at City than any other away game to have less possession. They only had 35% and they've been averaging more than 50% away from home this season. So it kind of almost played into their hands. I wonder if he might think you know, that there was a slight danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in terms of going pure possession when, let's face it, away from home, Wilfred Zahar is one of the best attacking players in the Premier League because he, he retains possession, he drives at players and, and he had some space on Saturday because they sat so deep. I mean, that was a feature of Vieira's time at Nice, possession for possession's sake. I mean, that was the stick that, that was used to, you know, to beat him the most frequently in that he, he arrived talking about wanting to play front foot, attractive uh, football, um, and it just didn't really happen. Uh, he, he'd sort of in, insist on, uh, on the team consistently building up play from the back, uh, and, and it, it made them a really boring team to watch um, and, and you know the results weren't great either so it, it feels like I, I get the sense that he's had more of an impact in the few months that he's been at Palace than he did in almost his entire time at Nice in terms of giving the team a successful identity but as Daniel says I think if, if there is a question mark over Vieira it is perhaps that the extent to which he is wedded to possession football when you look at the profile of some of the players he's got most notably Zaha they will probably be better served Palace by mixing things up and, and playing on the counter, particularly when they're you know playing against teams like City. What about for City themselves? Pep Guardiola in his 200th Premier League uh, game with a defeat, much as he did indeed in his 100th Premier League game when when City lost to Newcastle. Anything that they should take from this, or, or was it just one of those days? Well, it, 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 I, I mean, it was one of those days in that it came out of nowhere, but then so did the draw against Southampton at home, and mm. it isn't that. The profile of these games is normally that City concede early, have miss a huge number of chances, and end up, you know, not scoring or not winning the game or not even taking a point. But in the Southampton game and in this game, and to an extent as well, the the two 0 home win against Burnley, they're not actually creating huge numbers of clear cut chances. Um, the, the one thing I, I looked at was Jack Grealish has played pretty well this season. He's created twenty six chances, which is by far and away the most at City, but. It's not that he's not having enough of impact. I wonder if he's almost having too much in that so much play is going through him that normally at City you get a, 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 you know chances created by a, a vast variety of players, whereas actually it's Grealish creating them this season rather than anyone else. Clearly they're missing Kevin De Bruyne and that will help, but I almost wonder if I wonder if because De Grealish is dominating play in that way that he might consider switching shape a little bit and getting Grealish more central, maybe like a you know a four two three one rather than. Grealish in a 4-3-3 and just have him central get the wide get Sterling out wide have you know Riyad Mahrez on the other wing or, or Foden can play on the left and just try and change it a bit because they they look quite easy to defend against and Palace haven't been keeping that many clean sheets Southampton hadn't been keeping that many clean sheets so it's that's that's slightly worrying I think I found that it's a bit like watching Villa last season <laughs> just just give the ball to Grealish and, and, and see what happens. And like, like you said, that would not be what you would expect from Manchester City with all the attacking talent that they've got on the pitch. But it, it is almost a bit predictable. Get the shift the ball out left to Jack Grealish and see what he can do. And, and teams do seem generally to, to be wise to that this season. So I've, I, if I was a City fan again, I'd, I'd be pretty alarmed by that so far this season. Mm. Manchester City slipping to five points behind Chelsea, although we've seen them roar back from bigger margins than that before. Liverpool... In second place, three points behind the leaders. Quite the come down for them 
After their last two results, they'd had back-to-back 5-0 wins. The first half at home to Brighton, it looked like more of the same as they raced to that two-goal lead. Salah had what looked like a third, and then that was uh, disallowed. And, and, and then what happened? Yeah, what happened is that is that Brighton did what they did against Manchester City last weekend, which is come out of the blocks in the second half and just Potter had clearly told them that he wanted 15, 20 minutes of incredibly intense pressing football. And, and it spooked Liverpool. Klopp admitted much after the game. He, he said, you know, we didn't defend. He consistently said over and over again, we didn't defend the half spaces well enough. He also accused players or no, non-named players of, of having bad body language. And yeah, they just they just dominated that midfield. Liverpool's midfield is missing players. You know, it's missing mm. Thiago Alcantara, it's missing Fabinho. Naby Keita went off injured after being rushed back. So Milner as well. Yeah, Curtis Jones played pretty badly. So yeah, there are reasons for that. But yeah, Brighton are it felt like a really significant weekend for Graham Potter because we haven't since I think the last two were probably Sherwood and, and Moyes, the last kind of two British coaches to make that jump up to a big six club. And Potter feels like the poster boy for the kind of next era of British coaching in that he went abroad, he learnt his stuff, he, he has teams that play good football, but also incredibly well coached and well drilled. And it was a really good weekend for that, for him to do that if, if he is wanting a bigger job because we've already spoke about Tottenham and, and Manchester United is there as well. And Brighton just looked better coached than those teams. Bissouma being, being back for them was huge as well. I think he'd, he'd missed the last few games and they'd kind of fallen off a cliff a little bit from, from where they were before. But as soon as you put him back in that midfield, they're, they're just a completely different side. So keeping him fit will be massive for how Brighton do this season. But you've got to give them credit for coming back from 2-0 down because Liverpool have been absolutely flying. After they got hammered by Man City last week, it would have been quite easy to end up on the, the wrong end of another hammering. So to come back and in the end maybe be a little bit unlucky not, not to win. I know there was a disallowed goal at the end. feels like there was a lot of disallowed goals. This weekend, but that you know they've come close to going there, coming back from two 0 down and getting three points. That yeah, they deserve an immense amount of credit. We also we shouldn't take for granted just how uh, you know how much this Brighton team is punching above their weight. That front four of Leandro Trossard, Jacob Moda, Adam Lallana, and Solly March. I mean, it's not an it's not an obvious team to be sat in the top six seven clubs in the Premier League. It's just an extraordinary amount he manages Potter manages to squeeze out of the quality he has. And what about Enoch Mwepu? with his Tielemans-esque strike. Yeah, cracking goal by Enoch Mwepu. And I really, really want to believe that he meant it. I think he did mean it. As you say, uh, strong uh, echoes of, of the Uri Tielemans goal from the other day. The only thing that makes me wonder about the extent it was intended was the fact he didn't celebrate it at all. Hmm. Um, and surely if you score a goal that good right. at Anfield... Before half-time, there's plenty of time left. I mean, he was sort of, you know, back to the halfway line, lads, here we go. Which is, to his credit, absolutely. Maybe he's just more of a team player than me. I think if I'd scored a goal like that, I would have milked it for all it was worth. Obviously, you know, Gumwepo is more, well, it's only 2-1, lads, let's just crack on. And, and mm. you know, if that was the case, then I, I say fair play. Maybe he's a, a Liverpool fan, or did he possibly used to play for Liverpool? No, he's, um, he was bought, ostensibly, I think, because Brighton if not assumed, certainly feared that, that Yves Basuma might leave in the summer. Um, they certainly expected bids from, from Arsenal and Liverpool, I know that. And Basuma is still there and they played together on, on Saturday and they're both very similar types in that they look to press the ball um, but they're, they're brilliant with it as well. They're not simply destroyers. You know, they're, they're both in that kind of Kante mould of it's not just get it and then give it to someone who can pass, it's give it and then suddenly look forward for, for a kind of progressive passing option and together... 
they are a brilliant central midfield partnership and and they're both still young as well i think they're both 23 so yeah brighton brighton's recruitment is is as good as every other element of the club at the moment excellent they're unbeaten of course in their last three premier league meetings now with liverpool so i don't know why we were surprised by that result uh, you mentioned Graham Potter going abroad to do his coaching the club that he took to the uh, knockout stages of the europa league ostersunds sad news there they got relegated from the swedish top flight uh, this weekend so mm. big big financial problems i think didn't they yes well anyway now straightforward enough for chelsea meantime at st james's a 3-0 win there away at newcastle reese james he shoots like a horse said thomas tuchel you've written a book about the footballing argot and its variations across the continent have you come across he shoots like a horse before tom shooting like a horse no although i feel like you could very easily turn it into a chant Shoots like a horse, shoots like a horse, and then something else. Reese James shoots like a horse. But yeah, and I mean, I suppose we have like, um, actually in France, you have frappe de mule, like he he hits it like a a mule, I guess. But is that not a backwards kick or something? Would that not be? No, that's just a very powerful kick. Oh, like like a traction engine. Yes, similar, similar. Um, I mean, I don't know whether any of you have ever been kicked by a horse. I have been by a horse, and I can tell you that it does hurt. So I can understand the the sense in what Thomas Tuchel was saying. Right. Um, so you know, maybe maybe that's one that you know that we can we can pick up ourselves. I mean, this is how the language of football works. You look at Fox in the Box. Fox in the Box came from French. Came from something that Arsene Wenger said. Uh, actually, something that Thierry Henry said in the aftermath of the 2001 FA Cup final, and it conveniently plugged a hole in our native football lexicon. So maybe a, a shot like a horse uh, in, in time will, will come to do the same. Right. What other uh, phrases? Chocolate leg, would you like to see that imported more? Chocolate leg's a cracker, yeah. That's the Dutch yeah. phrase for a player's weak of foot. The idea right. being that it melts in front of goal um, and you know it can, cannot be relied upon. That's it's a good difficult, one. though, because it, it's that's a negative thing. But to me, when you say chocolate leg, I think brilliant. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm a big chocolate fan as well. So, right. yeah, I, okay. I, I see where you're coming from there, James. Anyway, so Reese James, most assuredly not uh, with chocolate legs. Uh, what, what a brace from him. He's now up to, what, four goals this season? Yeah, top scorer for Chelsea in the Premier League. Mm. Um, I, I was looking at this game and it... it, it it's a, there's a long way left and Chelsea only have a three-point lead, but there are some very obvious similarities with Antonio Conte's 2016-17 season where uh, it's the same formation they're both playing now. Conte switched to that 3-4-2-1, which, which Chelsea played at the weekend, that gets kind of tries to get the wing-backs so high up the pitch that they can either cross the ball or if those two players behind the striker drift wide, they can kind of underlap, which is what Reese James was doing uh, at the weekend. And... And the variety of goal scorers. I think Chelsea have already had 16 goal scorers in the Premier League. I think eight or eight players got five or more in, in 2016-17 in the league alone. So, yeah, there are huge similarities and they also feel like those kind of mentality monsters, which that 2016-17 season was, was done. That team had Diego Costa in. I think Tuchel probably will want to get Romelu Lukaku into a more useful uh, role within that team, but it sort of doesn't matter. It's it's mad. It feels like Lukaku's goals are, have suddenly become almost like a bonus because they're sharing them out so much and that the, there's such a wide range of of options when they get in the final third that you know they were pretty poor in the first half, but they just keep going and going and eventually chances come. 
as, as Daniel says, there are similarities with um, with that title-winning season under Antonio Conte. But the big difference is that whereas Conte basically picked the same team week after week after week, Tuchel just constantly rotates, and not even just the forward positions. You know, he rotates the back three. He, you know, he'll rotate the wing backs. Uh, you look at the front three that played at St James's Park. You know, Ziyech, Hudson Odoi, Kai Havertz. None of those three are guaranteed starters when everyone's fit. And you know, albeit this this was. Uh, a game where they had to show a lot of patience, they end up winning out quite comfortably, and that for me is is, is pretty unique in the recent history of uh, of the Premier League. A manager who is able to to shuffle his pack as much, I suppose you could say that Pep Guardiola has done something mm. similar with Manchester City in recent seasons. But that for me is one of the striking things with Tuchel. It's not just that he settled on this winning formula within literally a week of taking over from Frank Lampard and then went on and won the Champions League with it. It's that that formula, that way of playing is so clearly defined and so skillfully coached that you can put almost any player in almost any position and they still, you know, blow teams off the park. Brilliant. Just do that as well because Ross Barkley and Loftus-Cheek, you'd have said they were absolutely finished at Chelsea. But each week at the end of the game, they're on the pitch. I mean, Barkley was, was awful for Villa towards the back end of, of last season, but he's coming in at Chelsea and... As you say, you can you can see that the coaching set up there, and whoever plays wing back as well, they're just always in the goals. Chilwell's just had a spell where it, where he couldn't miss in front of goal. It always feels like Alonso pops up with goals. Reese James was at it this weekend. I mean, I think he spent some time in midfield on loan, on loan at Wigan back in the Championship a few years ago. But Tuchel has just done a, a sensational job, and everything he touches seems to turn to gold. Right. Dan, anyone who's counting on there being three teams worse than them come the end of the season, uh, Newcastle must be pretty good news for them. But it's 64 sleeps now till the transfer window opens again for the Magpies. They're six points from safety. What do you think? Could be too late. And what what kind of players can you attract when, when, when you're in that kind of situation? I mean, obviously, they've got a, t- a ton of money, so that that's always mm. going to help. But throwing money at it and bringing in a load of players in January won't necessarily work. So they need to get the managerial appointment right and I, and I, and I think that's going to, going to be tough I, at the moment I think I feel like they need a stabiliser I know they've kind of just got rid of a, of a stabiliser in in Steve Bruce although Newcastle fans would probably say he's absolutely not not one of those but I think it might take getting a, a Hodgson or someone in for Newcastle because they, they need to get organised they've, they've got that same defence that they had last time they got promoted in the championship like 23% possession in, t- in two games is the average under Graham Jones. That, that is not a good look for any team. So they need to get to January and, and, and be in touch. And at the moment, you wouldn't bet on that. Are we any closer to them just deciding on a new manager? Yeah, I think this week, this week was always the week they were aiming to name it. They, they kind of announced that Graham Jones would have Palace and Chelsea and they'd try and do it this week. Although, you know, there isn't any obvious name that's come out and there are a lot of well-connected journalists in that part of the world who haven't settled on a name yet so they're, they're being pretty coy about it the, the only kind of offset of of the negativity about Newcastle maybe going down is that in the great scheme of things there's an argument I saw a Newcastle fan making this argument it, there's an argument for it just turning a five to ten year plan into a six to eleven year plan in that if they've got so much money and they are clearly there for the long term if they have a season in the championship Normally, the worry about going down is that you lose the broadcasting revenue and only get the parachute payments. But if you've got billions of pounds to spend, then maybe they don't see that as a complete disaster. Maybe they see that as a necessary evil. They, they won't want to go down, clearly. And they will they will move heaven and earth in, in January. And I think they will sign two or three extra players than they would have done if they were 16th or 17th in the league. But it's not necessarily a disaster in that they've got, you know, they've got so much money that that kind of washes over everything else. 
good laugh as well, wouldn't it, if Newcastle went down just after the Saudis have arrived? Obviously Note, not for Newcastle fans, not, but not a good laugh for the rest fans. of us. Mm. Well, that's half the joy of football, isn't it? Indulging in other people's misery as opposed to having to suffer through your own. If, if, not, if not more than half, James, let's be yeah, honest. Yeah, in fact, all of it. That's all. Uh, very good. I will be uh, riffing on other people's pain uh, more after this. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite according to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which might just come in handy when Brighton start being Brighton again and go back to outperforming their XG and not winning. Free match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet, £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. It's over 18s only. And please, gamble responsibly. Tom, every weekend you work for Canal Plus. Talking about the Premier League. The plus. Sorry, James. It's Plus. Well, okay. Plus. So I just, you know. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, but anyway, what I was curious about is what what narratives do the French particularly enjoy about uh, the Premier League? Which, which, back in the day with Arsenal, I imagine it was all about Arsenal. Now, which are the clubs that get them excited or the ones they're always asking you about? I mean, Arsenal's still very popular. Um, You know, still have... Some French players, uh, some mm-hmm. ex-Ligan players as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, mainly it's, it's the same things that we get excited about, that the big clubs at the, at the top of the table, the, the Champions League contenders, the Chelsea's, the Manchester City's, the, the Liverpool's, players with, with France internationals, so Manchester United, Tottenham, Chelsea, right. um, Patrick Vieira, of course, at Palace, that's attracting, mm-hmm. uh, that's attracting the attention this season. Former yeah. Ligan players doing well in the Premier League, Maxwell Cornet banging the goals in at Burnley, that sort of thing. Yeah, which I guess makes makes sense. The, the familiar names. It, it, what most intrigues them? What, what most baffles them about our top division? I think one of the things they enjoy is our fan culture. Um, I was explaining yesterday why we'd all been so tickled by Aaron Ramsdale joining in with the "Oh, your sh ah." of the Leicester fans and that stuff that stuff goes down well not to say that you know French football fans aren't kind of ingenious in their chanting and their banners and everything but I think that's something that they particularly appreciate about the English game right crikey it was a wonderful moment in a particularly brilliant game from Aaron Ramsdale Uh, that was uh, Leicester's well Arsenal's 2-0 win away at Leicester Daniel you were actually there at the King Power you wrote Arsenal's 2-0 win felt like a breakout day for Arteta's new team. How nervous were you as you typed those words? Yeah, it's good because I knew I'm not covering Arsenal again for at least two weeks. So I can avoid the home defeat to Watford 
and the the inevitable cries of crisis that follow that and then pick them up again when they win away uh, the next time but no it did i mean it did feel it did feel certainly different for any arsenal team i've seen in a long time because um well, firstly, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Alexandre Lacazette are, are pressing incredibly high from the front. They've always, they, you know, they're not they're not work shy players by any means, but they are the two oldest outfield players. Yet they've got that energy that seems to reflect that the youth behind them is kind of rubbing off on them a little bit. Um, half that team that started at the weekend was 22 or under. You know, Nuno Tavares is young and probably won't start every game. Albert Sambi Lokonga the same, but. Having that youth, it, it just provides a freshness to Arsenal that when they are high energy, they are incredibly good to watch and they are incredibly hard to play against. And they also now have these players, of which Aaron Ramsdale is probably the most obvious, who I always think you can judge a, a, a club's mood by the, the mood of the away support. And the away fans absolutely love Aaron Ramsdale. They love Lokonga. They love Nuno Tavares. They obviously love Saka and Smith-Rowe. They've got a new champ for them that they were seeing constantly throughout the game. And if you've got a team with Saka and Smith-Rowe out wide and pushing forward, then it's pretty impossible not to be excited by it because they're, they're brilliant young footballers. So, yeah, it does it does feel like a new age for Arsenal. There is still the fear, as, as you refer to, that kind of Arsenal can drag everyone down quicker than they can drag Arsenal up. But... Yeah, it, it did feel like a breakout win. They were they were completely dominant, having taken a two 0 lead. Ramsdale made some excellent saves. Let's not, right. you know, let's so, not forget that. Yeah, a two goal lead in the opening eighteen minutes uh, with with Gabriel and uh, Smith Rowe doing the honours, and then particularly in the second half, Leicester began to exert dominance, began to come back into it, and Ramsdale looked absolutely key. They had eight shots on target, the Foxes. And one in particular, that uh, Madison free kick, which the save of which Peter Schmeichel, as you've probably seen, called the best he'd seen for years. Yeah, it was really nice to hear Aaron Ramsdale after the game. He's a pretty, he's a confident bloke, but he's also gets very embarrassed very quickly when he gets given a compliment. He he, he basically couldn't speak. He kind of said, oh, uh, that's amazing. I can't believe it. Um, yeah, I think that was the only save that I'd really have, have, have maybe not expected him to make. They, they had a huge number of shots on target. They had a huge number of shots, most of them from distance, and most of them because Arsenal were basically trying to play out a 2-0 win. The kind of game state dictated that Leicester were going to have more of the second half. Um, but it's kind of nice to see Arsenal do that. We used to see Arsenal getting pegged back in those situations, conceding maybe after, you know, like the Liverpool game, conceding after 50, 55 minutes and then facing a huge amount of pressure from a, a normally decent Leicester team. But they were... Yeah, I thought they were much more serene than the, the stats of the game necessarily suggested. Hmm. Two things on, on Ramsdale. His distribution is exceptional. And there's a, a particular style of pass that he excels at. A low drilled pass breaking the lines. And there aren't many goalkeepers who would even attempt a pass like that. I mean, you think of Edison, Alisson, you know, the, the, the great sort of playmaking goalkeepers of the Premier League. I think even they would, would sort of balk at, at some of the risks uh, that, uh, that Ramsdale occasionally takes uh, with the ball at his feet. But he is so good at that sort of drill pass that breaks two, even three lines and, and gets the team up the pitch. The second thing about Ramsdale that, that, I, that I really like is the slightly mad vibes that he gives off. There's something, he reminds me of almost like a kind of 90s goalkeeper. There were slightly mad goalkeepers you used to get more back in the day you know, untucked shirt, bantering with the crowd. And I think that's something that, that Arsenal fans have, have really warmed to. And I think it's one of the things that makes him such a, a watchable player as well. Brilliant stuff. A sort of Jens Lemon redux, but nicer somehow. Uh, very good. Uh, fantastic result then for the Gunners. 
Uh, Leicester, meanwhile, a bit of a come down after their mighty win over Man United. Uh, they, on Saturday, were also drawn away to Liverpool in the quarterfinals of the Carabao Cup, which won't be until late December. What a tease that competition is. Uh, Arsenal, meantime, in the quarterfinals, will be at home to Sunderland out of League One. And the other two games are Brentford having another go at beating Chelsea and West Ham visiting Spurs. Neat segue alert because uh, West Ham's up next. Dan, you were at Villa Sunday. Yes, you were. Don't deny it. To see West Ham's 4-1 victory there. How impressed were you with these hammers? Yeah, they're, they're a very good side. They're a bit of a throwback to, to Moyes at Everton, aren't they? They're so well organised, so well drilled, but they've got that sprinkle of, of attacking talent as well. Declan Rice, mm. I mean, he's been a great player for, for a couple of seasons now, but watching him in the flesh yesterday, he absolutely ran the show. He's such a good player, so many good attributes. I think he's actually deceptively quick. He takes the, these long strides and perhaps looks a little bit awkward at, at times, but he, he gets around that pitch and Villa did give him an awful lot of respect, which, which would have helped. He had a lot of time on the ball, a lot of space, but I feel like his game's come up under the notch this season. He's, he's a little bit more, he's not a box-to-box midfielder, but he's a little bit more box-to-box than, than he was and he's starting to pop up with, with goals now. He's just such a likeable character as well. At, at the end of the game, he went round and clapped the Villa fans as well, which isn't something that that away players do very often and that that they'll get the round of applause back. But I think there was a, a lot of mutual respect between Villa and Declan Rice because to be fair to the Villa fans, that, that they did stick with the team despite the fact that we were on the, on the wrong end of a, of a really bad result. But yeah, Declan Rice is something else in that midfield. And him and Suchek, they've got this combination of the fact that they give such good protection to the back four also, they give the, such a good platform to the players in front of them to, to, to go and be free and, and, and to try and run the game and get goals. And as a midfield pairing, I honestly think if I was to pick, pick one in the Premier League in, a, in, a t- in an 11 of mine, I think you'd pick that too because they're so, so good together and, and they offer those things that I've just said. Well, they've got West Ham up level with Man City in the top four. The numbers are pretty remarkable. Five wins in a row if you kind of count the penalty shootout success against City midweek in the League Cup. They've taken more points away from home this season than any other side. Uh, It's their joint best points total after 10 games in Premier League history. Is it ridiculous to talk about them as potential top four contenders come the end of the season? And also, how much impact could this talk of Czech investment a fat check, if you will, uh, coming in uh, with the arrival of the billionaire Daniel Kretinsky's uh, taking over a 27% stake in the club. A big check, uh, of course, connection these days with, with West Ham. I I mean, a, a big check with a big check, potentially. Exactly, yeah. I, in terms of the top four, I mean, it's going to be very hard because eventually the kind of Europa League, which I'm, I'm really pleased to see West Ham really going for that competition... Um, that will have an impact. But the point about you make about the away form, James, I think that's really interesting because I think there's one weakness of, of Moyes at Everton and he, he clearly punched above his weight. It was that when they went away from home, they quite often kind of played to not lose rather than to win. Whereas with West Ham, more than any other club, they seem to play exactly the same away from home as they do at home. And I think what Dan says about Rice and Suchek, I think that's the reason. I think they're so good at what they're doing that they don't need to change. They, they can play exactly the same way. And you know maybe, maybe the fact that the London Stadium historically hasn't been the most enjoyable home stadium to play in, maybe that helps. Maybe that the fact that they go and play on the road and they just play this kind of expansive, pretty expansive football. You know, even at their best under Everton, Moyes' Everton, 
could be uh, a little bit stagnant away from home. West Ham are the complete opposite. It's not that they're winning. It's not that they're grinding out wins away from home. It's that they're really going at teams and, and I think surprising them. All right. Well, West Ham inside the top four, three-point margin over Man United and Arsenal. Meantime, at the other end, Villa, three points outside the bottom three. How worried, Dan, are you about Dean Smith's side? I'm pretty worried because West Ham have that ability to make the pitch seem absolutely massive when they come forward, whereas Villa seem to have the ability to make it look really small and compact and everything felt really, really slow. I was I was worried about the game before the game off the, off the back of th- three defeats, you know, four defeats in a row isn't a good look for any Premier League manager. If you lose four games in a row in the Premier League, you're going to be coming under some form of pressure. And Dean Smith's definitely under that. Now he, he's, he's ridden a couple of storms pressure-wise. You know, the season we nearly went down. We came back after lockdown and he, and he reinvented Villa and we managed to stay up. But he was under immense pressure before COVID hit. I think he probably would have got the sack then had COVID not come about. It's just not working at the moment and he's kind of throwing things in there and, and, and nothing's sticking. They're trying to integrate new players. They've brought three players in to replace Jack Grealish, but then we haven't necessarily got a system to fit all those three players in. I was a bit alarmed by yesterday's team selection because I always think when a manager's chopping and changing his formation, that, that, that shows panic stations a little bit. So he went away from the three at the back that we have been using. There was a couple of absentees, but I think he would have probably done that anyway. The captains ended up getting dropped, which again, I don't, I'm not sure what, what that achieved. We still ended up ship, shipping four goals. You know, Toro Mings is a big character at Aston Villa and he, and he is the leader. And when he's not there, it, do, it does feel like that there's no one in, in, in that lineup to cajole the lads and, and get them together and get them organised. Mings is the organiser of that side. So I didn't necessarily think that was the, the right call. I don't know what kind of statement Dean Smith was trying to make there. I'm a massive Dean Smith fan and he's got a lot of credit in, in the bank because he has worked wonders at Aston Villa, but he does feel now that he's under significant pressure because the, the owners have got serious ambitions and I don't think Christian Perslow will, will mess around if the defeats continue. All right, three points off the drop, along with Watford and Leeds. Of course, they weren't helped, Villa, by the red card for Isri Konza uh, on that uh, foul on Jared Bowen, which Dean Smith was kind of railing against afterwards. But I think everybody else who watched the game was going, yeah, but what about Courtney Hurls on uh, Pablo Fornals? My goodness. Is there any way that can be retrospectively acted on? Because that was brutal. Yeah, they, they can. If, if VAR missed it, then there can still be retrospective action in the Premier League. So it could be. I don't think it will be. Uh, I think there's one of those where almost the punishment for one player kind of covers <laughs> the actions of both and they'll just go, well, one red's enough. But um, yeah, the, the other thing to say on Smith is, and it's not purely his fault, it's a sign, as Dan says, of the club's ambition, but they have spent more than 300 million on new players, on transfer fees alone since they came up. I know selling Jack Grealish for 100 offsets, a third of that, but that's not, the actions of a club that are happy to be, you know, even to be kind of treading water in the bottom half, never mind kind of under relegation trouble. So, yeah, I agree with Dan. It's very, very hard to know where, very interesting to know where Villa see themselves in terms of approaching another manager because more than any club of which there are managers under pressure in the Premier League, I, I can't pick where Villa would go. I don't know if they'd go nah. for a kind of foreign name like a Lucien Favre or an Eddie Howe or they'd go for... They surely wouldn't go for a stabilising manager. So it's really hard to know where they're at. I know that one of the owners has got a really close relationship with Nuna. Uh. So that, that, that concerns me with the news that we've just heard a little bit. <laughs> mm. Crikey. The other side's down there, by the way. Leeds had a narrow win at Norwich. Watford got beaten at home by Saints. 
That Leeds uh, win at Carroll Road, all the goals coming, and there were three of them, in the space of four and a half minutes. Crikey. Rafinha first, then Norwich pulled one back, and then uh, Rodrigo. Leeds' first away win of the season. Any significant things to take from this game? I think it just showed, again, how crucially important Rafinha is, particularly in, in Patrick Bamford's absence. You know, you looked at the team that they they put out at, at Carrow Road. I think Jack Harrison was playing as a, a sort of false nine with with Rodrigo just behind him. Um, and you know, Leeds have made a very poor start to the season by the standards they set last season. Um, they're only just above the relegation zone. If it wasn't for Rafinha, they'd probably be really in the mire. Um, and I think given the um, the status that he's now acquired as a Brazil international, um, and not just a Brazil international, but a, a freshly capped Brazil international who's been decisive in almost every appearance he's made for Brazil um, since his debut, it's hard to see him staying at, at Ellen Road you know, beyond the end of this season. And he is really the, the one player who's keeping them afloat at the moment. All right. Saints, meanwhile, are handing Watford that 1-0 defeat uh, with the wonder strike from Che Adams, who struggled to replicate it afterwards, as did his teammate uh, Armstrong. But it was uh, that was pretty nice. Yeah, and I thought I thought it was really good to see Southampton being really solid defensively. I mean, I know Watford are um, kind of haphazard shooters, but uh, yeah, Salisu was great. Carl Walker Peters and Livermento, arguably one of the kind of low key best fullback partnerships in the Premier League when they're both fit and playing well because Livermento is, is is absolutely wonderful he's so mature and he's so rounded for his age and Walker Peters got a little bit lost on the way and he's kind of having to play slightly out of position but yeah he's a really really good fullback I think when they fire Southampton are a far better team only their second away win of 2021 for Saints remarkable and with the Wolves Everton on Monday night that leaves listener just Burnley's 3-1 win over Brentford uh, for us to talk about from the Premier League. Absolutely does not deserve to be last, but you know here we are. Burnley's first Premier League win of the season and their first home victory in the league since January and nine years to the day since Sean Dyche took over at Burnley. Crikey. Quite a way to mark the occasion. Yeah, I mean, classic Burnley in many ways in mm. that they'd made a poor start to the season. Uh, they were without a win. Um Contrary to, to preconceived ideas about Turf Moor, as you said, James, they, they hadn't won there since January in the league, which is pretty remarkable. But I think there's always a sense with Burnley that at some point they're going to put a performance together um, and, and remind people what a formidable team they can be. And, and this is what happened um, against Brentford, you know, three goals in the first 36 minutes, a real sort of up and at them performance clearly caught Brentford on, on a bit of an off day um, and it, the suspicion always with Burnley is that once they get that first win that will you know that will be the start of, of a run that sort of gets them into mid-table then that'll be that'll be them safe for another season and they can you know they can uh, they can put their feet up and, uh, and enjoy their Premier League status for another year you know I, I think as, as impressive as, as Brentford have been albeit you know with their form having tailed off of late with those three consecutive defeats. Um, you know, Burnley have always got this in them. Um, and, you know, I, I think we saw, you know, we saw what uh, what an accomplished Premier League centre-forward Chris Wood is. Um, I, I think, we, you know, we saw some of Dwight McNeil's creativity setting the third goal for Maxwell Cornet, who's made a fantastic start to life mm. at Burnley. I mean, he was playing at left-back at Lyon 
Cornet, um, having having sort of come through as a as a winger, and they could just never really find a place for him in the team, and he was basically being blooded as a a kind of super attacking left back, um, and and I think Sean Dyche started out with, with the idea of putting him back on the wing, and ended up basically playing him centre forward uh, against Brentford, and he's now got four goals in in five games uh, for Burnley, um, and and has, has bedded in really nicely. Um, so yeah. Cracking afternoon for, for Burnley. The sun was out and um, uh, I would have thought that that will be the start of them getting their act together. Brilliant stuff. All right. Well, shortly, uh, we'll be hearing uh, the latest from around Europe, including Pochettino watch from Paris and that. First of all, though, let's get some odds from Carl Monaghan and producer Charlie with Paddy Power. Thank you, Jimbo. Hello, listener. We are 10 games into the Premier League season, so myself and Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power feel well-equipped to make rash judgments about the rest of the campaign. Hey, what about the Gunners? Fourth place in Arsenal used to go together like fish and chips, but now it's a far-fetched concept. Or is it, Carl? Well, with the dark clouds over both Manchester United and Spurs at the moment, Charlie, the likes of Leicester, West Ham and the Gunners will be licking their lips as the race for fourth this year certainly looks more open than it has in recent seasons. Mikel Arteta looked doomed after a dreadful August, but since then his Gunners side have gone unbeaten in nine in all comps, registering seven wins in the process. It's been an impressive turnaround in form, Charlie. Their centre-back partnership of Gabrielle and Benjamin White has gelled well. Don't call him Ben, whatever you do, Charlie, or Andrew Cole will phone the name police on you. Aaron Ramsdale looks a decent signing now between the sticks, but it's the Croydon de Bruyne. Emil Smith-Rowe, who has made Arsenal fun again, Charlie, with his swagger and invention. Despite Arsenal catching the eye of late, the Paddy Power traders are playing hard to get, it seems. They make Arsenal 16-5 to to make the top four. A decent bit of value, Charlie, if they can continue to improve. More misery for the Magpies on Saturday. No wins and still no gaffer at Newcastle. What's happening to the manager market, Carl? Are they veering further away from a Fonseca and closer to someone that can keep them up? <coughs> Hodgson. <coughs> well, Charlie Roy Hodgson is a 25 to 1 shot, but I'm not sure the Newcastle owners are going to go down the Zimmer frame and Werdel's original route of recruitment. Uh, Roberto Martinez is the latest favourite to take the helm at the Cash Rich Magpies. He's 3 to 1. The Belgian coach won an FA Cup with Wigan, so he'd probably relish the chance to have another stint in England, this time with a blank checkbook. Former Arsenal boss and current Villarreal coach Unai Emery is 7-2. You mentioned a Padofan Seca, Charlie. Well, he's now gone from the market leader to third in the betting at 4-1, to one, so maybe the interest cooling somewhat on the former Roma manager there. ex Borussia Dortmund boss Lucien Favre is now 9-2. to two. Frank Lampard is not going away. He's 17-2. to two. And John Terry is 10-1, to one, a little unlikely. It's a topsy-turvy market, Charlie, this one and we expect it to continue in that vein until the Newcastle Fat Cats get their man, whoever that may be. Listener, you can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18's only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Totally Football League shows out today with a big shout-out to Neil Warnock, who Tuesday night is going to take charge of his 1,602nd match as a manager in the Football League. His first was with Scarborough against Wolves in 1987, before any of us were born. Uh, he's now overtake, or he will overtake on Tuesday, Dario Grady, as the man with the most Football League uh, managerial stints thing. Yes, that made sense. Good. In the women's game, last season's FA Cup semi-finals took place on Sunday. 
Arsenal beat Brighton 3-0 and Chelsea did Man City by the same scoreline. You'll get much more on that in the Athletics Women's Football Podcast, which is out on Tuesday. Also out on Tuesday, competing for your ear time. Totally Football Show European Edition with such diverse topics as ooh, Juventus losing their second City A match in the space of four days. 2-1 defeat of Verona. The remarkable thing here was that both Verona goals were scored by Diego Simeone's son, Giovanni. And the remarkable thing about that is that the previous Sunday, he scored all four of Verona's goals as they beat Lazio. So he's now got six goals in, I think, 105 minutes of football because he only came on as a sub midweek. Crikey, we'll talk about that. Juve's title hopes being over. They're 16 points off the top. We'll talk about Roma getting beaten by Milan with Zlatan in exceptional form. We have been wondering whether he was kind of a ceremonial mascot-esque role uh, this year in to do the team talks and that. Uh, but no, he, he was brilliant. All the hold-up play and an absolutely lashed low free kick driven past Rui Patricio to, to get the ball rolling for the Rossoneri. Classic Mourinho afterwards said, I'm only going to take one question. I can't talk. I don't want disciplinary action against me. I want to be on the bench next weekend. That anti-Moo conspiracy spreads right across the continent. Tom, Paris Saint-Germain, they came from behind to beat reigning champions Lille 2-1 on Friday night. In the process, extending their lead. What is it, 10 points now in Liga? So why is everyone hating on Poch still? It's because the football is just really bad um, and, and PSG just seem to keep producing the exact same performance um, but getting the exact same result. This was the fourth time uh, in, in Ligue 1 this season that PSG have won a game 2-1 with a winning goal scored in the 87th minute or later. What happens quite a lot is that PSG put out a team packed full of superstar players, don't really get going, um, I mean, they were basically played off the park by Lille for, for large periods of this. Lille got uh, a first-off goal through uh, Jonathan David, Canadian striker, who's in really, really good form this season. And PSG didn't really lay a glove on Lille until the sort of the second part of the second half. And what what inevitably happens is that is that PSG's of in, individual players start getting on the ball in more advanced positions and start putting their opponents under more pressure. In this case, Angel Di Maria was the main man, set up the equaliser for Marquinhos and then uh, scored the winner in the 88th minute uh, after a really nice one-two with, with Neymar. And, and PSG's individual quality is what is getting them through in these games. And you look at the table, you know, they're miles clear, they're top of their Champions League group. In terms of the results, Pochettino couldn't be doing much better. And I think people who perhaps don't follow French football that closely might be a bit, little bit puzzled as to why he's getting quite so much negative press but it's just because PSG for the amount of money they've put into this squad they don't look anything like the team that they could be um, and, and interestingly Leonardo the sporting director he spoke to journalists in the mix zone after the game against Lille on Friday night and he said yeah look the football's not great we know that but we're trying to we're trying to improve it you know don't be under illusions that, that we're all happy with, with the way things are we know that there's still uh, you know that there's still progress to be made, um, so that's that's basically where PSG are. I mean, you know, they already feel like they're halfway to the league and title, but I think it's it's legitimate to expect a better quality of football, given the quality of the players they have, but also right. the, you know the, the sort of identity that the Pochettino gave to, to Tottenham so successfully in his time there. We, we've not seen any of that yet uh, in his time at PSG. Right, Leonardo, no doubt expecting a better quality of football after bringing in Lionel Messi uh, from Barcelona, but Crikey, he hasn't scored in. Five games now in Liga. In fact, no player in Liga has had more shots without scoring 
than Messi. He was taken off at half-time uh, against Lille. Uh, he'd been a slight doubt before the game with a, with a muscle problem. Didn't really look at it at all, uh, in fairness, in the 45 minutes that he was on the pitch. I think Pochettino is still trying to figure out how to... How, not how to fit him into the team, because obviously the first time on the team sheet, but, but where to put him in the team. He's played on the right in a 4-3-3 quite a lot. It's a sort of throwback to his early days at Barcelona. There's been a lot of talk about whether that's the best place for him. He, he actually started as a false nine uh, against Lille, but you know, was, was, was physically diminished um, and so we didn't see the best of him. Uh, I think, I think you know, where Messi has shone, it's been in the Champions League, which is, you know, the competition that he was, he was really signed for. Uh, but yeah, in Liga at least, we're, we're still waiting for him to, uh, to take off. Well, we'll hear much more about that from Julien Laurence in Tuesday's Euro edition, uh, along with Raphael Honigstein, James Horncastle and Alvaro Romeo. I think that pretty much wraps it up for today's show. Of course, Thursday... We'll be back talking about Premier League, updates on the Spurs situation and all the other situations out there too. For now, though, it's many, many thanks to Daniel, to Dan, to Tom, to Charlie and you, listener. And uh, have yourself a great time until we see you again. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.